on this podcast of Journey to the Stone, we're going to talk about one of the gems that is closest to my heart. This is a gem I have been chasing since I was 13 years old. I know everything about it. I have been to pretty much every locale. I have hunted down specifically and discovered, I have personally discovered over seven deposits of this variety, putting them on the map. We are going to cover the legendary and one of the world's most well-known gemstones, Sapphire. And I'm going to try and cover the whole spectrum of all the major locales of Sapphire, the different varieties of Sapphire, what's happening in the world market, what happened before, what's happening now, what's available, what's not available, etc. So let's start with the legend of all Sapphires. What is the most well-known and has been collected Sapphire in the auction world, the collector world, the most in-demand Sapphire in the world, and also the most limited Sapphire in the world due to mining depleting over a hundred years ago. That is the legendary cashmere sapphire. This particular deposit is the highest known mine of any gemstone in the world being mined at over 18,000 feet altitude. It is mined in the Kashmir Valley in, Pad in the Padar region of India. It produces some of the most important sapphires to record on record to date. This particular material is actually quite interesting because it's never very crystallized. It always has some velvety silk within the crystal structure, and that's how gemologists are able to identify this material as being the legendary Padar Kashmir Sapphire. It is rare, it is exclusive, and it has demanded prices up to a quarter of a million a carat. If you look at if you look back historically at some of the legendary sapphires that are in museums that are in the most important collections that constantly go to the main auction houses cashmere sapphire always reigns the highest price demanded per carat of any sapphire in the world not because it's the most beautiful by any means there are more beautiful producing deposits but it's a historical stone it's got that legendary aspect to it dating back hundreds and hundreds of years to the times of the Maharajas in ancient India, very similar to the Kalakanda diamond, etc. And they're well known, primarily producing blues, but you also do get some pinks, you get some purples, you get other varieties coming out of this legendary deposit. It is really, really unique and special when you can get some more open, vibrant colors like hot pink, etc. They're not common and they are very, very rare and very hard to find due to the fact that this mine has been closed for over a hundred years. Very difficult terrain. I have walked the vertical limit between Azad Kashmir to Padar Kashmir, doing a lot of geological surveys between this locale and actually researching the gemological deposits. This particular mine was formed, we used to think it was formed around 50 million years ago through the formation of the Himalayan belt. But we now know that this mine was actually formed 25 million years ago through studies that we 
have done from walking this, you know, geological mass amount of mountains. I mean, you're walking through the Himalayan belt. And what basically happened is you had the Indian tectonic plate and you had basically the Eurasian plate colliding together, which created the highest mountainous range in the world. And they still say that that mountain range is still increasing in height slowly. It's very, very slow. But as these plates collide together, this mountain range is still growing. But something happened 25 million years ago. And this is recently that we found out this information through our studies and going to Kashmir. And I've been there like eight times and I walked the vertical limit going back and forth over 800 miles going all the way from Azad Kashmir to Padar back and forth. And I mean, it's crazy terrain, very difficult. You're going up and down from 5,000 feet to 10,000 feet, 15,000 feet. You know, it, it's really, really difficult. You've got to be in top, you know, top fit shape to do it. Very, very tricky. But I wanted to do it before I got too old to do it. So I did it eight times going back and forth. I went village to village, got to meet people who had family within this industry, got to see their stones, got to learn everything I wanted to know about Kashmir Sapphire. And that was an experience of all experiences. Now I'll take you to Sri Lanka. Now Sri Lanka is one of the most remarkable locales when you're talking about that neon electric blue. 99.9999% of all sapphires coming out of Sri Lanka, if you look historically to the 1980s and 1990s, the largest exports were made from Sri Lanka to Thailand. I sell a lot of rough. That's my core business. And what they used to export was Otto and Kyoto. And these particular deposits, Kyoto and Otto, these particular deposits were certain types of Ceylon sapphire. When exposed to temperatures of 1800 degrees, these particular sapphires through heat treatment would basically turn this royal electric blue as well. And that is what 99.999% of the world's sapphire deposit is, is this material that basically has been heat treated in Thailand and basically sold throughout the world. And that's what you'll see in almost every shop in the world. But every once in a while, you'll see the hand of Mother Nature in effect where that production of this beautiful crystallized neon blue occurs. And that occurs in Sri Lanka known as the cornflower or the royal blue colors. This particular material is extremely rare if it has no heat because heat also reduces rutile needles, which is the silky aspect in unheated stones. So unheated stones coming out of Sri Lanka also have a little bit of silk. If you find them with good crystallization, they are extremely rare and extremely coveted and very, very collectible. But if you find them, but they're very, very hard to find and they represent maybe one in 10,000 sapphires to have that nice blue color with good clarity in the natural form, right? They got amazing colors, predominantly the cornflower blues and the top royal neon electric blues that you'll see coming out of Sri Lanka. And then also one of the most important collectible gems in the world that is predominantly a Sri Lankan phenomenon. It goes back hundreds of years back to the Maharajas as well is 
the Padparacha Sapphire. If you can get Padparacha Sapphire with that perfect lotus color of the integration of pink orange, like the lotus flower, that particular material soars at auction and collectors pay huge premiums, up to 50,000 a carat, no sweat. And you know, Cap Florence has so many notable Padparachas that I've collected through the years, you know, like 10 carat unheated Ceylons. I've got a couple that have come from other locales as well, even as rare as Magok. But they're I am a big fan and collector of the Paparacha Sapphire because I know they're only one in a million stones. They're extremely rare. They're coveted. Mother Nature has to have the perfect storm of events to basically put together, you know, the perfect trace elements to give you that lotus flower color. And it can come in multiple types. You have the sunset or the sunrise. The sunrise basically being more of, you know, the sunrise more the pinkish orange variety variety and then the sunset more of the orangey pink variety and then everything in between but they must have a predominant pink orange effect integrated within the crystal structure and if you can get these stones unheated it's like super rare they are very uncommon so when i go to sri lanka i export about you know hundreds and hundreds of kilos of rough material because that's my core business and i sell that to cutting factories all over the world and what i try to do when i'm going through these hundreds and hundreds of kilos i have sorters who grade the rough and whenever they see a pot paracha they pull it aside or they see a hot pink they pull it aside or they see a violet they pull it aside these stones are extremely rare they actually represent a minuscule amount of whether what mother nature produces if you can get nice purples nice hot deep vivid pinks and you can get that rare integration of the pink orange podparachas making them one of the most collectible sapphires in the world now cap florence only deals with unheated varieties and these varieties are very uncommon they come predominantly out of my collection of going back and forth to Sri Lanka for over 30 years. They're extremely rare. They're coveted. And if you like sparkle, Sri Lankan Sapphire gives you sparkle. Now I'll go to the Magok Stone Track because the Magok Stone Track, not only, I mean, first of all, it's ruby demands the highest price per carat of any colored gemstone in the world. Second to blue and pink diamond. There is no other colored gemstone that's even close. Emerald is about a quarter of a million a carat. Cashmere Sapphire is a quarter of a million a carat. Ruby demands over one 0.1 million a carat coming out of the Magok gemological mines of the Magok stone track and that particular area. Now, I've been going to this area for a long time, right? I've lived in Thailand for the last 30 odd years. So when I was very young, like 15, I was ignorant. I was a little bit dumb. I didn't really care. You could not enter into Magok or you could not go into Burma at that period. It was a closed country and I used to sneak across the border. So I used to sneak across the border now it was basically if they caught me i don't think i would be here making this podcast right now because it was not you were not treated well if you snuck across the border but i used to do it either way and i used to travel into the shan state through the shan state follow the magok stone tract and stay with the villagers i speak thai fluently i also speak to other dialects you know northeastern eastern from the area of southeast asia and i grew up in southeast asia basically hunting these rare stones you know so i was in you know i was going to basically pileen and cambodia at the time i was up in vietnam when the new discoveries were happening up there up in luke yen you know so 
I'd been all over there and I used to go across to Burma. It was one of my favorite locales to go to because of the legendary Pigeon Blood Red Ruby. But it also produces what's known as the Magok Blue Sapphire. The Magok Blue Sapphire is expensive. It's very, very unique. It has, just like all gems from the Magok Stone Tract, it is the finest grades of what sapphire can become. So you do get a lot of royal blues. You get a lot of, you know, open, vibrant colors and a lot of sparkle. It's very difficult to get clean Burma. They usually tend to have a silky patch to them if they're natural, unheated. That's why most people heat the stones to reduce the silk aspect because what what happens when you heat sapphire is you actually are the needles the rutile needles within the crystal structure is what that silk is and you're not actually removing it you're just sort of melting it what happens is the needles become less visible to the naked eye allowing more crystal to go through the crystal structure and that is what you know that's why a lot of people like to heat the stones right it's sort of like an aging process you know making that steak a, a little bit more well done and so it brings out the perfect brilliance but what I collect and I've always collected is the stones that are perfect from the hand of Mother Nature. To have a vibrant, intense, royal blue Magok Sapphire that has crystallization is so rare, it's unheard of. A little bit of inclusions is actually accepted in the Burmese stones. Like, for example, the million dollar a carat sunrise ruby that was sold at auction, right? That million dollar a carat sunrise ruby also was not perfectly clean. So it's the the expectation coming out of either cashmere or magok stones is never to be perfectly clean anyway they're looking for nice color nice size you know good crystallization and great vibrance and that the stones coming out of the magok stone track will give you and you know we've also found very rarely and i collect only rare so i found some paparacha colors coming out of magok as well you get the occasional nice yellow predominantly the yellows coming out of sri lanka rain supreme the deep vivid yellows you get some nice natural color yellows 99 i mean i would say one in a hundred thousand yellows in the marketplace is actually unheated right so you would say 99,999 have been heated the Thai market controls the yellow market because they buy this lighter color yellow coming from Sri Lanka or Africa they heat it to improve the color and reduce you know reduce the rutile needles in the crystal structure bringing out that electric pop that comes out of yellow sapphire but if you can get a deep nice color or a vivid color like a fancy yellow or a canary yellow color or golden in natural that is extremely rare and very very difficult to find predominantly out of sri lanka you do not find this color coming out of the magok stone track you get more of a medium to lighter yellow right and uh, you do get some clarity there but you see more of lighter colors coming out of the magok stone track magok stone track predominantly you see the pigeon blood red ruby you get a lot of spinels you get you know some peridots that are unbelievable coming out of there but their stones are world 
respected. I mean, the McGawk Stone Tractor, top, top of the line. I'm going to introduce you to the imposter mine. Now, the imposter mine is the Diddy deposit in Madagascar. Why we call it the imposter mine is because it's produced some of the most important sapphires, rubies, and fancy colored sapphires ever. It is really a remarkable deposit. So right there in a national forest, what happened is two illegal loggers pulled down a tree and in its roots, there was these two stones, a red one and a blue one. He took these stones down to the capital Tana. He basically met some Sri Lankan guy who gave him $20,000 in cash for these two stones. Can you imagine that? A normal guy in Madagascar getting hand $20,000 in cash for these two stones i mean that create that created a riot what happened is he went with all this cash back and within a week we had 10 thousand people migrating into the national forest now you're not allowed to mine in the national reserve in madagascar you know what i mean that's where the animals are that you're not supposed to mine in this particular area anyway you know people saw the riches it was like the gold rush in california everybody started moving it was like a whole town moving and a lot of it you know came from the ilakaka area because that was the big strike about five to ten years prior to Diddy was the Ilakaka, right, in the in a different part of Madagascar. And a lot of people were just, you know, running towards this Diddy deposit because they knew it would be short-lived. And the return was unbelievable. Anyway, that Sri Lankan guy who bought it for 20 grand, close friend of mine, went back to Sri Lanka, sold these sapphires, no joke, for 600000 and then they ended up selling at auction for a combined total value of two million for the two pieces so that was the exponential rush going into diddy this was in 2012 now i went in there early days because i spent a lot of time in madagascar i've hunted sveen in the northern part i i discovered demantoid over in the man mangroves in madagascar as well as a hundred different varieties madagascar is one of the most amazing producing countries for stones in the world but here it was the rush was on so off i go to diddy it was still early days there was only a few hundred people there and i start buying these stones and i start to realize holy moly there's sapphires here that resemble the identical look and identical feel of the cashmere sapphire and i was thinking to myself oh my goodness we're gonna have a problem here We've got sapphires coming out of Madagascar that have the exact same inclusions as sapphires that come out of Padar Kashmir that sell for a quarter of a million a carat. This was crazy. So what I did is I stuck around for literally four months in the jungle while the whole madness happened. I bought every sapphire I could that had this phenomenon. I bought in total less than 10 stones. That's all I've ever seen like it, but they are crazy. So stones like this, you will see Madagascar Diddy stones that look identical to the most expensive cashmeres. They're very uncommon. Most of the stones tend to be more in the darker variety, but every once in a while it'll blow your head off what also was produced in this deposit was 
Padparacha. Nobody had ever seen Padparacha that would rival the finest quality Sri Lanka in unheated form. Remember, what was good about the Diddy deposit is a lot of the rough material was actually good enough to be cut in the crystal natural form. That is uncommon in ruby and sapphire. Usually 99.99999% of all stones in ruby and sapphire must be heated. These particular stones could be cut in the natural form, which was extremely rare and extremely uncommon. Anyway, it was short-lived. 2012, the hunt was on. 10,000 people, cities being built in the middle of the jungle. It was crazy times. It was wild. You know, I remember Dr. Peretti from GRS coming in by helicopter, right, to do, you know, analysis on these stones. It was a big deal. Rubies that look like Magok, sapphires that look like Ceylon and Kashmir. It was crazy days. Anyway, the military came in, shut down this, kicked everybody out, right? And there's been no more mining since. And we're pretty much done with Diddy. They enforce the rules and regulations. And, you know, it's okay. It's the way it works. And, you know, let the lemurs and the animals be happy because the deposit, I mean, most of these places that it was mined, it was pretty much just found at very low depths and everybody could get back to living in a happy environment. And that was it. And most of the miners just headed to a different direction and a new discovery in Madagascar, which is a which is a constant thing, you know, whether they're discovering, you know, sapphire or discovering ruby or discovering other different types, everybody went back to the continuous of mining. So the sapphire world has actually been one of my most exciting worlds. And I could go on and on about the discovery of the Mobila Sapphire in Nigeria. I was one of the first people in there that produced material that was identical to the Pylene deposit coming out of Cambodia, more of a royal blue basaltic type, right? As opposed to like the neon electric varieties. And I can go on and on when it comes to Sapphire because it's endless. But guys, I tell you now, when you see sapphires in Calf Florence, these are some of the most collected stones I've held on to over the years of my gem hunting of over 30 odd years. And when you see it, there's always a characteristic like the paparacha is like a color that nobody's ever seen before, or it's a historical stone, or the yellow is so vibrant and electrical and deep, you know what I mean? Or it's a ditty that looks like a cashmere sapphire that nobody has in the world. That's what I focus on. That's what I love to hunt. I like to collect rarity. I like to collect what nobody in the world has. And the rest I sell off in rough because that's my core business. So keep your eye out on Sapphire, right? I'm constantly looking for new discoveries of Sapphire and Ruby all over the world because my, my core business is selling rough Sapphire and Ruby as well as, you know, 200 other gem varieties. But Sapphire and Ruby being hundreds and hundreds of kilos every month, even close up to a thousand kilos on certain months because Sapphire Sapphire and Ruby is one of the most recognized, you know, types of mineral in the world. Corundum, you got your Ruby Sapphire being two of the big four. Then you've got Emerald and Diamond, of course, right? So hold on to these gems. If you do get a Cap Florence, Ruby or Sapphire, specifically any of the colors I talked to you about, hold on to them because the price is only going up. Straight on up. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Talk to you soon.